This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. things, maybe some uh, southern stereotypes. But what if I told you a kill Billy could be from anywhere? In fact, on tonight's episode, our kill Billies come from Canada, of all places. That's right. We're taking the deliverance ripoff and going to the great white north with 1977's Rituals, also known as The Creeper. I am your host, the maniacal minister, the occult, the devil you know, the original motherfucker, the Rev, Dan Wilson. And I am here with my team of surgeons going on vacation. Dreamboat Annie. You were supposed to bring extra shoes and your toothbrush. I supplied everything else. <laughs> Returning to the show, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. He was such a boob. Such a gentle boob. <laughs> a gentle boob slayed me. I I had to run that back a couple of times, actually. Yeah, and uh, if anybody wants to say Say that at my funeral, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. That you were a gentle boob? Noted. Yeah. Assuming I outlived what you. What else did you ask for? <laughs> Ladies and, and gentle boobs. Boob, so. <laughs> we already know I'm a boob, so I just want to know that I was a gentle boob. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love a gentle boob, right? And rounding out the residency, the one, the only, the great Mooji. Who wouldn't pay for a bigger dick? Honest question. This, yeah, then, uh, this is, go ahead. And then if you did, maybe you would get to see more gentle boobs. <laughs> Very true. Uh, this is a film that I had never seen, uh, had heard of it. I was at least familiar with its existence. A, a few years ago, my buddy Mike Robles of uh, Smart Mark Video, IWTV, Longtime veteran cameraman of the indie scene, one of the real unsung heroes, honestly, of uh, of indie wrestling. Mike, uh, he's always throwing me some great old horror movie recommendations, and um, I guess it wasn't a few years ago. I guess it was like uh, earlier last year after Hal Holbrook passed. I had made a comment on Twitter about 
uh, you know, enjoying a lot of his work. And he was like, oh, you got to see fucking Rituals. Be sure to check out Rituals. You know, you like how Holbrook, it's like one of his best horror movies. So that always lingered in my mind. And then when we were talking about putting this season together, Grizz brought it up again. And so, you know, I thought, well, fuck, two times the charm in this case, you know, if, if there's an unseen horror movie from the 70s that two of my friends are telling me to check out, then I think I got to check it out. And it just so happened we were putting this season together then anyway. So hence my first viewing. What about y'all? This was my second go round. I stumbled across this one on Shudder just a month or two ago. So I was pretty quickly impressed with it. And there was. The you know, before we'd even talked about putting the season together, like you said, but there was the obvious deliverance ripoff connection. But yeah, it was a uh, pretty good on the second viewing, too. I only know of this because of one of the other um horror podcasts that I listen to, which, quite frankly, you know, one of the other ones, one of the, the second or third or fourth best horror podcasts there are. Um, somebody had mentioned this movie, I've heard the name of it, I'm sure Andy will talk like later, but there was some sort of like recent release you know on one of those like one of the many specialty like we put out the movies that you know a thousand of you want to buy uh dvd companies and um i'm pretty sure there was something recent that came out and so i heard it mentioned on a on a pod but other than that i've never seen it and i hadn't heard of it until then that's probably within the last year or two i don't think i have to answer this question <laughs> we all know Andy didn't see it was the uh, the aforementioned podcast Muji? Was that Colors of the Dark? I can't even remember for sure where it was mentioned, but that's probably like the most likely podcast that would have mentioned it. Um, it also could have been like I don't listen to like every episode, and it's not horror theme. But there's another pod that actually has Elric from that on there a lot, called Just a Disc, where they just talk about new, newly released like physical media. So it could have been there, too. But Colors of the Arts, the most likely place. Shout out to those guys. Uh, very cool people. Uh, Becca McKendry and Elric Kane host that. And that's like a show. If you just want recommendations for fucking movies, like they, it, that's all they do every week is just give a bunch of recommendations for movies and talk about shit they watch and they like. And uh, it's, it's a great listen to find new movies. So, uh, you know. If you, you like the deep dives here, you want to like just a big old list of stuff to go watch, go check those guys out. Yeah. All right. Especially if you want the most random shit ever. If you want to be recommended, like, I found a fucking 1973 movie about a crocodile in France where they fucking used a horse, taped a camera to a horse and used it as the hard cam. Shit like that. If that interests you, it's a good podcast. Hell yeah. Well, uh, before we dig on into rituals and find out a little more about our Canadian deliverance ripoff, and for all intents and purposes, really the final kind of straight deliverance-inspired movie, you know, there's, you could argue that there will be a thread of deliverance as long as there are movies where strangers get lost in the woods and attacked by hillbillies. But the theme of, of like this group of city slickers getting lost and like just kind of the whole tone, like a down river adventure type thing. This is kind of the last of these that we're going to see for a minute. Um, we've got some other stuff coming up later in the season that you'll definitely draw 
parallels, but uh, but this is the Canadian version. So before we dig into this, do have to shout out our sponsor, of course, Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions, bringing us another wonderful musical guest with the heaviest fucking metal around. They welcome the band Blasphemous Creation back to the show. Played their tracks on here a couple times before, but this is from their EP that was released in June. Beyond the Grave, they come to us from Nevada, and they were formed back in 2006. They perform old-school death and thrash metal right up my alley. Uh, They were following up on their successful HPGD debut, Forsaken Dynasty, with this EP. And Beyond the Grave showcases four brutal and intense re-recorded classics from the band's early days, spawning the 2006 to 2009 period of the band. Therefore, fans of Carcass, Destroyer, 666, Dismember, Dissectioned, God Dethroned, Creator, Niflheim, Skeleton Witch, and Sodom, here is Blasphemous Creation with Shadows of Evil, kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims. Yeah. 
The Coroner's Report. Most of these I do. Okay, so, you know, we mentioned this is kind of the, the Canadian version of Deliverance. Uh, it, the, the, it, it really is twofold, right? So in the 70s and the 80s, the Canadian government introduced these new tax laws in an effort to boost domestic film production. And at that point, it was virtually non-existent in the country. And the results were not really what they intended, but it did provide a steady stream of cheap and often tawdry exploitation picks rushing forth from the Hollywood North, to paraphrase Marico McDonald from Film Threat. And uh, Marico also said, since these works were largely ignored by Canadian film historians, it seemed as though the industry in general was so embarrassed by the whole situation that they would rather just pretend it never happened uh, and pretend the films never happened. But Canadian and exploitation filmmaking in in general overall was deeply influenced by this run of movies. And we've talked about this some on the show, right? We have covered the original Black Christmas. We have covered, I think we covered My Bloody Valentine. If we did the original or the remake, maybe both. I'll have to go back and, and fact check myself on that. Uh, we, you know, 15 seasons in, you do start to forget a few occasionally. But we've talked about this on the show before regardless. And uh, this is another in that long line of the Canadian tax shelter films. But instead of being influenced by... The slasher films of the day, this is more influenced by Deliverance. Um, And it is very much a slasher in a lot of ways. And it predates Halloween even by a year, which is pretty wild. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff coming out of Canada. It's directed by Peter Carter. And Peter Carter was a Brit who came to Canada in the 50s and quickly found work as a director with the CBC working on popular shows like RCMP, which is uh, short for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Wojak. I wonder if that was the Canadian Kojak. I don't know anything about Wojak. Uh, His first film was the 1972 Gordon Pinsett vehicle, The Rowdy Man, an often bleak look at a small-town rebel coming to terms with the death of his friend. It is openly considered a classic in the Canadian film canon on par with films like Donald Shabib's Going Down the Road. Rituals was his first horror film, and he continued to work in the horror genre until his death of a heart attack at the age of 48. So uh, Peter Carter was not with us for a long time, but he was here for a good time, and he did make this film and a few other horror films. Uh, The movie was written by Ian Sutherland, who also penned the child custody comedy Improper Channels, as well as the 1985 action comedy, also directed by Peter Carter, High Point. So, Wojak was the, it's arguably the first successful drama series on English-Canadian television. It aired from 66 to 68 and is about a big city coroner who regularly fights moral injustices raised by the deaths he investigates. The first episode of the series examines the role of racism in the suicide of a young um, First Nations man. Man, Canadian TV just always went way fucking harder than American TV, did it not? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I grew up watching Degrassi, and they were like, that show was like, the, the tagline was, yeah, 
we went there. Yeah, they definitely weren't afraid to get a little risque on Canadian public broadcast television. Uh, the music was handled by Haygood Hardy, who was a Canadian composer, pianist, and vibraphonist. Mainly played jazz and easy listening music. He's best known for the 1975 single, The Homecoming, from the album of the same name. And he composed the soundtrack to the Anne of Green Gables and Anne of Avonlea films. It's probably what he's best known for outside of Canada. And uh, finally, the cinematography was handled by Rene Verzier. So uh, not a lot of crazy backstory to getting this movie made. It's really more that, uh, you know, it jumped on the bandwagon of the Canadian tax shelter phenomenon and we got a, a deliverance out of it. You have to say, going back to the music, um, you don't notice a whole lot of music except for the main and ending theme, but I thought it was composed fairly well and just seemed to set the mood right. So as far as the cinematography, I mean, if we're comparing it to Deliverance, I think it's got some definitely comparable shots. Now, obviously, Deliverance had a bigger budget and dare I say a little more talent behind the camera. But I think there were some really good landscapes in this one that like the music set the tone. So I think overall, it's a pretty good crew assembled here. Yeah, it's a great point on the, the cinematography. I was found myself a few times kind of impressed with both the rawness of the shots. Cause like, I mean, especially like with the fucking prop plane, when they fly out into the fucking lake, uh, you know, no CGI there. It, it's 1977. They had to really film that shit. And uh, they didn't have any big fancy rigs. They're drones, you know, they could fly the camera up with. So uh, that was pretty wild. So I, I did find myself impressed with both the risky nature of some of the shots and just the creativity of some of them. It was a little outside the box. Yeah, especially like, you know, towards the end where they're getting into the uh, the burned up part of the forest. I thought there were some great landscape shots. But, you know, there's the one with the, uh, the clouds rolling in. I thought that was... Uh, just fantastic to look at. Yeah, would agree. It uh, certainly, if you compare it to Whiskey Mountain, you know, it it does seem much more like a feature, like theatrically released film versus kind of that more exploitation style that it was shot in. And a lot of that has to do with the cast. So let's talk about them. Leading the charge is the iconic Hal Holbrook as Harry. Of course, the plot is, you know, we have a group of doctors who take an annual vacation together every year. They're all good friends, different type of surgeons. There's a lot of like technical talk and moral and ethical talk about the job they do. And, you know, it leads to arguments and different things. And I think that that's one thing that kind of makes it a little different than some of these other deliverance ripoffs is like they added an extra layer to it that they're not just fucking like white collar office guys from the big city. Like they are, you know, they, they're doctors. They got military experience as well. So there's, uh, you know, there's a bit of a different dynamic there. And I think it really works. And Hal Holbrook's such a fucking legend. Um, you know, he just sadly passed away in January of 21 at 95 years of age, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, not going to go through his full filmography because we've done this on the show once before. We did it back in season six, the John Carpenter terror timeline on our episode on the fog. 
and you can go check that out along with the entire archive of Seeking Human Victims stuff. 15 fucking seasons all the way back. Just $1 a month gets you access to all of that. Patreon.com slash OG Scare. Not only do you get 15 seasons of content, you get new episodes one day early, so you get to listen to it before the rest of the world even gets a chance. Join it. Patreon.com slash OG Scare. And yeah, how how Holbrook fucking ruled in this. Uh, maybe one of his best performances, because he's not one. He was a fucking amazing actor. But, you know, aside from being the one-man show Mark Twain for most of his career, he was generally not a lead guy. He was generally a supporting actor, and he did a very good job of that. But this is one of the few movies, like, he's really given the weight of carrying that main role. And uh, he really fucking does an amazing job of it. I just found myself just, just loving how Holbrook in this. Yeah, I think, you know, Given the fact that by the time we were born, he was already getting up there, getting long in the tooth. Uh, I think most of the roles we'd probably seen him in, he's kind of understated, you know, more of a support character, maybe like the wise older father-in-law or whatever. But in this, it was really interesting to see him get really physical and, you know, especially towards the end of the film where he's kind of losing his mind a little bit. I thought, you know, he kind of displayed just a great range just throughout the course of the film i mean all of that i don't know what else to add on to that pile but yeah really carried a lot of weight here man when that motherfucker picks up that head on a pike and gets pissed off and just throws it <laughs> shit off the side of the mountain I fucking died. He tossed that shit like he was trying to get a gold medal in the javelin toss. <laughs> like, sir, that's a man's head. <laughs> that was the uh, the boob toss there. The gentle boob. <laughs> he didn't toss that boob very gently. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I think a great scene is, is in the end when he's in the cabin trying to cauterize his wound while Mitzi's yelling at him and cussing at him. I thought the... He just executed that very well. And then once he realizes Mitzi's dead and he, he breaks down again, I thought, you know, he really ran the ran the gamut on this one. Hell yeah. R.I.P. Hal, we salute you. Uh, then we had Lawrence Dane as Mitzi, a Canadian actor and producer. He actually works as a producer on this film, but he's also acted throughout his career. He's probably best known for his role as Lieutenant Preston in Bride of Chucky. I just fucking love that movie. And one day we'll cover it here. Probably do at some point to go back and do like a child's play franchise look. But uh, especially in light of the series, which has been fucking phenomenal. But uh, he produced a lot of films as well. He was from a Lebanese family, actually, originally. And he attended Ottawa Tech and LaSalle Academy. Uh, his screen career began when he met filmmaker F.R. Crawley back in 1958. He gave him a job as an extra as Constable Frank Scott in the TV series RCMP. In addition to acting, he co-wrote and directed the drama film Heavenly Bodies from 1984. And his producing credits also include The Rowdy Man, written, and starring, written by and starring Gordon Pinsett. And, of course, the film we're talking about tonight, Rituals. And 
Mitzi got burned alive. <laughs> it's a hell of a way to go. This may be a controversial take, but he was like so annoying when he was like about to be burned alive, which I can only assume if I was about to be burned alive, I would be fucking yelling at people too. But his whole like, you gotta get me off here. You gotta, you gotta get me off here now. Like, I was like, eh. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's we'll fine. get there when he gets there. Yeah. Scre- <laughs> He's behind me. He's building a yeah. fire. Like, okay, cool. Like, that's not helping. Yeah. It's like, I mean, he he didn't know that you know he had how Holbrook had like you know hit an artery and like had to if he, you know he's gonna told him. Oh yeah. He's like, I'm bleeding. I hit an artery. He tells him specifically what artery it was. And he's like, oh, no, man, no. Yeah, I guess Well, he did true. promise him that he would fix it. So if, yeah. if he only got him down. But uh, I think yeah, it's funny how was... Moji just gave him a New York accent and Annie gave him the scared Southern accent. So neither one of you get points for that one. I got to be honest. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't doing an accent, Grizz. Oh, Lord. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we can all agree. He was being quite annoying. And step by step, he was like. Oh, he stepped over that log. Now he's got a left foot on the log. Both feet are over the log. And he's like, I'm still bleeding to death. Can't help you yet. <laughs> also, you fucking ran off on your own. Told you not to. You could have been in here with the blind guy hanging out. Yeah, I thought it was a fairly decent performance. I thought maybe the character just seemed very contradictory because, it, you know, it may just be me, but the whole time he's trying to be Harry's buddy until when it counts and all he wants to do is remind him that he buried his old man. So I don't know that would, I found that to be kind of the only character flaw as it were, but other than that, it was a solid performance. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think he was written to be kind of annoying. I think yeah. He was I thought act, it was a, acted very well. <laughs> it was a really good performance, but he was definitely like, he was definitely written to be the one of the friends that you, I don't think you were rooting for. Like, I mean, he was like, very quick when their friend, you know, fucked himself up and they had to put him on the gurney. He was very quick to be like, we should just leave here and let him die. Like, fuck him. Like, we got to get out of here. So, yeah, but what's yeah, interesting was... is that when Harry wanted to kill DJ, Mitzi didn't want him to do it. Right. That's what I was about to say. Is he was he was all about leaving the clearly, like, he was still alive. Like, yeah, he was in bad shape. But they're like, you know, he, it's just, so it's an ankle. Um, and he's like, nah, fuck him. Leave him here to die of exposure blindfolded tied to a cot and then the guy that's nailed to a chair and is they thought was already dead he was like absolute nope i'm drawing a line here man yeah good points presented for sure there and then we had uh robin gamel as martin gamel began acting as a junior ensemble member of the stratford shakespeare festival playing roles in a midsummer night's dream julius caesar the tempest and macbeth he later reprised his role in Macbeth for the 1961 TV film opposite Sean Connery. And he later moved on to film and TV work. He was in a great horror film from 1973 called The Picks, P-Y-X, with Karen Black. Uh, he was in Lipstick in 1976, Raid On and Teb in 1977, Full Circle in 1977, of course, this film. Uh, the Concord, Airport 79, Murder by Phone, The Star Chamber, Project X, Strikers Mountain, and more. 
Uh, he was on a lot of TV. He was in the blue and the gray, judging Amy, Amazing Grace, Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, The Commish, Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, Nip Tuck, Star Trek The Next Generation, How to Get Away with Murder, and more. Uh, he's also played several notable historical figures in docudrama films and TV series, including Walter Moberly in The National Dream and uh, Adolf Hitler. In an episode of Witness to Yesterday. So Robin Gamel is Martin. Martin is the one that got his ankle fucked, right? That's right. Yes. Marty. He was the severe alcoholic. He spends most of the film being carried somewhere. Yeah, he's the one who had given up being a surgeon to just be like a, a general practitioner. And he was like, the bro- his brother was DJ. Yes. It's a long time mapping this out, so I would remember. <laughs> You can always uh, tell when we do all these credits of like these like people who had success in theater, like what actually pays, because you'll get these great credits where it's like he starred opposite Ian McKellen in London for five years in a, you know, Tony Award winning play, blah, 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 blah. And then he also did an episode of Psych opposite Dulé Hill. <laughs> hey, whatever pays the bills, man. Well, and I we thought, had, he, yeah, I thought he actually carried quite a bit of the film himself, you know, even though he was supposed to spend most of the film drunk. But I think he added a, a bit of emotional weight to it. He had kind of a complex character. So, yeah, I thought he certainly didn't detract anything. I thought he added to it. He did. And he's the first one to totally fucking crack up. Like when uh, when the, the first character dies, Abel. He's the one that loses his shit. Like he he immediately is is not fit to be out there, and and his delirium after he hurts his ankle then becomes this is almost like an omen to the bad shit that is about to befall them. I thought it was was really effective. You know, actually, I missed that the first time I watched it, but I caught it the second time, and it's like, oh. This is why it's called Rituals. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of Abel, well, he was played by Ken James. He was known for his performance in Cinderella Man from 2005 and Fly Away Home in 1996, as well as The Shipping News from 2001. He had a very long career in Hollywood, and he passed away in Toronto, Ontario, Canada in September of 2016. Uh, Abel, short role in the film... <laughs> The bees got him. The bees, not the bees. Um, of course, uh, not not really, but it was in the chaos of that that he's murdered, uh, basically, where he, you know, he ends up breaking his neck. Um, but it was uh, points for creativity. You don't have too many bee attacks in slasher movies. Yeah, sadly, you knew as soon as he was on screen who the Ned Beatty of this film was. So... <laughs> You know, you were just kind of counting down the minutes on that one. But, you know, like the like the others, you know, very solid for what screen time he did have. Absolutely. We had uh, Gary Reinecke as DJ, who's a red herring. Reinecke appeared in more than 80 films since 1974. A definite Canadian, that guy. He was a Genie Award nominee for Best Supporting Actor at the 4th Genie Awards for his performance in The Gray Fox from 1983. Uh, DJ, again, you know, he was the the dick. They kind of thought, oh, he was going to 
He was the one that was picking them off initially until they find his corpse, or at least what they think is his corpse, and then Hal Holberg has some mercy kill him. But uh, <laughs> nice red herring that they keep you on. I, I didn't really think it was him, but uh, I definitely, you know, I, I thought it was a good plot device. Yeah, I've seen enough movies to where I was like, that would just be too, too obvious if it turned out to be him. But yeah, it was like, it was still like there in the back of your head, like maybe their friend's just a dick. Oh, for sure. I was like, really? Like they're oh. all immediately like, DJ did this. And I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe he sucks. Like for real, wouldn't that be fucked up? Like that <laughs> would have been a slightly different movie, but I feel like they could have gotten wackier with it at least. Also, um, if you're going to go into some like random trip into the wilderness, you know, where you're all, like, the majority of you are, like, obviously fucking just, like, way overmatched by the elements. Like, maybe don't go into this experience with someone who, at the drop of a hat, you're like, oh, no, he's trying to murder us. That seems like good advice. Um, or even just, like, hire a guide or have some experience, like, knowing if you're trying to get to a lake, you should... Follow the river. And that was our traveling party of doctors. And now let's look at the villains. We had our killbillies. First, the uh, the hermit, Jesse. Not really a killbilly. Kind of a red herring for another one. Like, uh, But he did at least like live in the cabin and shit. Played by Jack Creeley. Uh, you can hear a little more about him if you go back to our season on the David Cronenberg terror timeline when we covered the film Videodrome. And you can learn more about Jack Creeley back on the archives of Seeking Human Victims, patreon.com slash OG Scare. And then rounding it all out, we had michael xenon as matthew and this was an interesting angle to take on the villain because look, he definitely looks like friday the 13th part two jason Voorhees. like once they rip the bag off his head uh that's definitely what he kind of favors but he's supposed to be someone who like had a botched surgery and is uh, picking off these doctors as an act of revenge um, which is, is kind of a, a creative means to give a motivation to a killer in a 70s movie. I was with it. Uh, Michael Xenon, the actor that played him, was best known as uh, a guy who played the native guy, Joe Two Rivers, in The Forest Rangers. What, Muji? I was just going to say, like, what a coincidence, though, of, like, he's, like, out living with his blind friend, out in the woods in a cabin and he's just out doing a little hike and he's like overhears them talking and is like it's doctors it's a whole group of doctors i could finally get my revenge <laughs> luckiest day of his life but that uh, is like legit that is legit like the story though is that he's out living in the woods and he hears them arguing over which kind of doctor is the best kind of doctor and he's like Dead doctors are the best kind of doctors, and my time to shine has arrived. Finally, my plan has come together. Well, I think what pushed him over the edge is when they were doing their put me back together again dance, and he probably thought they were mocking him directly. Mm. 
Good catch. The actor was originally born in the Ukraine. He moved to Canada after World War II with his family. And after his acting career was over, he became an assistant director and has been a part of many big film productions shot in Canada. So you you can go beyond uh, primitive Jason Voorhees prototype and become an AD. You know, you got to wonder. I just got to thinking about that, but. This is 1977. Friday the 13th Part 2 is like four years away. You think there's maybe some influence there? I, I kind of think there might be. Well, you know, crossing into Toronto and catching a flick probably wouldn't have been that hard if you're living in the state of New York. I mean, who knows what kind of movies they were getting and seeing and absorbing and ripping off yeah i mean i just i find it interesting i mean one could argue that jason Voorhees himself is a kill billy um, of a different variety of course but you know you could you could plug that thread in there but in any event let's look at the shooting dates and locations for this film uh, it was shot in northern Ontario from June 22nd of 1976 to August the 7th of that same year. And it was shot in Botswana Bay, Ontario, Lake Superior, Ontario, and the Cinespace Film Studios in Kleinberg, Ontario. So believe it or not, some of this movie was shot in a studio. I, I dare say, probably not a lot of what we saw, but I, I mean, clearly some of it had to be. Maybe the cabin. Maybe no, some of the, the cabin. Yeah. Some of the outdoor shots looked like um, they were cleverly set up to look like they were like on higher cliffs than they probably were. Faith in the fucking height of a cliff. That's odd, <laughs> isn't it? With that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Just not a whole, whole lot of tidbits about this movie, but I did find a few. Uh, the movie was shot in continuity, for one thing, so uh, that's always interesting and would be my preference as a director. You know, everything that we've ever done film-wise, we've pretty much shot in continuity. Um, I, I think you get better performances out of your actors that way and allows them to kind of feel the part more. But also, it's not always fucking possible, so... You know, sometimes that's a pipe dream. Sometimes actor schedules prevent that. Budgets, location times. So there's a whole variety of things that can keep you from doing that. But this film was able to, and I think, of course, it benefited from it. Uh, there's a, a natural build that you can pull off when it's done that way. And I thought that was kind of a cool fact. The deers. Oh, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say. Yes, much like Deliverance, but I digress. I think that's especially, you know, it's not like cool, but probably important, you know, as we were talking earlier, where we see the progression of the actors as the film goes on, you know, not just five o'clock shadows, but, you know, they do physically look weaker and more tired and more hungry. And you see how Holbrook progress into madness. So I thought, you know, shooting in continuity probably aided that quite a bit. 
Yeah, you can imagine to have to recreate that with makeup and shit every day, like, would be would be harder than just letting it kind of naturally happen. The uh, the deer head that we get is kind of the first omen. Things are bad. <laughs> we see that. That's a real deer head. No props there. Probably not a and hard. You probably didn't have to look very far to find. It. Yeah, you, we were on the same page mentally there. I was like, you probably didn't have to look very far. Probably, probably not hard to find. Kind of surprised they got away with that in Canada, but maybe it was a different time back then. I mean, you probably couldn't get away with that in America now or even in the last 20, 30 years. But. Mm, I don't know. I mean, deer is like, they're, they're considered like overpopulated and like there's a, a lot of the laws for hunting deer like to thin the herd. So, I mean, I guess, you know, who knows? PETA might have beat up your ass, think- but, you know, if you did it like humanely, it would probably be fine. I think that, I think what it would be is like did they kill the deer specifically to shoot the movie they would probably get some shit but like if they were shooting in the woods and like found a deer carcass and they're like okay we're going to use that in our movie then it's like you know we didn't harm the deer it was already harmed but it was a different time the film's wilderness setting, The Cauldron of the Moon, which is such a cool name, was shot in a stretch of Ontario wilderness that had been burnt out by a forest fire five years prior. Plenty of the charred trees left from the fire can be seen in the film and definitely adds to the atmosphere. You see them running around in a burnt down forest, you're immediately like, who the fuck burnt that down? In the anything ori- like, if it's anything like our forest fires it was probably a stupid ass redneck with matches yeah probably yeah i really like those scenes with the the burnout portion of the forest because you know i don't think wasteland when i think canada but i thought it definitely added to the vibe and the atmosphere because you can see that's the that's the time they're getting worn out and losing their shit pretty hard so i thought that was great yeah agreed in the original script, they, they definitely made a choice that they later added a considerable amount to. But in the original script, the killer's identity was going to be left unknown. I think that's a change that was made for the better. I, I think not knowing the killer's identity, you lose some of the kind of payoff of, of the movie, really. In the scene where they're trudging through the swamp, that was shot in a single take. Pretty impressive. That that seems like pretty obvious though when you're watching it because like they start trudging in and they're like kind of serious and then things just keep getting wackier when he like you're talking about when they when they're crossing through the like the river and he drops the uh, the tripod and he's like don't get my camera wet yeah I assume that a lot of that seemed ad libbed right and like because they started out kind of serious like they were kind of bickering with each other and by the time they got to the other side like none of them could keep a straight face I actually really enjoyed that scene because it genuinely looked like all the actors were having a good time which I think's just made for a, a smoother movie. Yeah, I agree. They all really had a chemistry together, and I think that scene really hammers that point home. Apparently, the cabin was a leftover building from the Canadian TV series The Forest Rangers that we mentioned earlier, but everything else was a practical location. So hey, hey Dan wins that one. Or was that Muji? I think it was Muji, actually. 
It was me. You win theoretical internet dollars. Have some tids, Moochie. Yes, tids are all the rage. Michael Xenon, you know, we mentioned he played the killer, but uh, he later became an AD. He was the second AD on this fucking movie. And it seems like they just pulled him in because they needed somebody to play the killer. He was already working. Apparently, Robin Gamel did all of his own stunts in the river sequence. To be fair, when they're like, they're like, oh, these rapids look like murder. Those are like, it's like a babbling brook. So they're like, he did his own stunts in the river. And it's like, he splashed around and had a great time. I wonder if he drank all his own scotch, too. I'm sure it was real scotch. Whiskey Mountain could have real weed. Rituals could have real scotch. That's fair. Fair and square. It was re-released in 1982 under the title The Creeper. And on Siskel and Ebert's TV show, it was chosen by Gene as the dog of the week. But Gene was mostly interested in whether or not it had been released before, and if so, under what title. Hundreds of readers then wrote in and answered the film that it was called Rituals from 1978. Yeah, you... Dummy, what kind of movie expert are you? I feel like that's the tone of every single letter. Totally makes sense that during, like, the absolute height of Slasher Mania, they would have re-released the thing. Like, this time it's called The Creeper. (laughs) Canadians always a little bit ahead of their time there with these slasher movies. Apparently, you know, we talked about how Hal Holbrook just kills it. Well, he earned his money. His salary was roughly one-sixth of the film's budget. Joke's on him. It was in Canadian dollars. (laughs) It was all in Canadian dollars. In an earlier draft of the script, the doctors entered the woods by train. It certainly would have changed things a bit. I think, you know, being flown out in a shitty prop plane certainly adds to the isolation feeling. Apparently after securing Hal Holbrook, they could no longer secure a train. (laughs) Guess not. But also, like Dan said, how isolated can it be if there's a train station? (laughs) Yeah, then they just had to get back to the train station. I don't know. This was the only time Hal Holbrook and Lawrence Dane co-starred in a film together, even though they were peers for many years. Apparently, if you look this video up on Amazon Prime, it says it was released in 2021, and an idiot could tell that's not correct. And our final odd and interesting fact, Mitzi's death from being burned alive was quite an impressive special effects feat. For 1977, uh, they don't go insane with it, but usually most of the, any sort of burning alive effect from the 50s to the 70s really typically looks pretty poor on camera. I mean, my God, we covered the Village of the Damned remake, and it has one of the shittiest burning someone alive scenes in all of films. Just um, hilarious. And it was from the goddamn 90s. So it's pretty impressive that they pulled off such a good looking burn a man alive scene here, mainly with mirrors. Very innovative for the time. But I think I think that would be like a fun little like weekend project to see if we could recreate that. I think that would be fun. Maybe we'll try to burn Annie at the stake with mirrors. Sounds like you're going to fry me like an ant, like under a magnifying glass. (sighs) I don't, I don't think we meant Boiled that. Your, boiled your plan, I know. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, let's see how this thing did. 
Um, we're, we're not really going to see that because it's Canadian, so they didn't give us receipts. But we're going to find a little about the numbers. Numbers of the Beast. Numbers of the Beast. It was released on October... No, it wasn't. It was released on August the 26th of 1977 in Montreal, and then not until um, September 16th, 1978 in America. So if you wanted to see this guy, you had to cross the border for a whole year there. Um, budget was estimated to be about 600000 Canadian. You know, how Holbrook got him 100 k of Canadian money. And, um... Who the fuck knows how much money it made? And I think, you um, know, more importantly to point out with it being a Canadian tax shelter film, they probably didn't fucking care. Or at the very least didn't want Canadian taxpayers to know that they had spent their money and not gotten a return on it. <laughs> Annie, you were going to say something there? Muji said, we have no idea how much money it made. And I said, some. Oh. <laughs> it's not an incorrect statement. Sure, it made some. They re-released it during the height of the slasher era. That little theatrical run alone probably paid for it. I was thinking they probably re-released it in hopes that they would. Like, they're like, well, we'll just try it again. Just, like, maybe no one will notice. The, the kids love the Friday the 13th. Just call it the Creeper. They'll never know. <laughs> what kind of reception did it have? Um... Not much for when it came out. Most of the reviews you find are from, like, horror websites. For example, The Terror Trap awarded the film three and a half out of four stars, praising the atmosphere, Holbuck's performance, and the editing, calling it an above-average journey into hell gem. The slasher website Hysteria Lives gave it four out of five stars, writing not since Deliverance has the wilderness held such terror. Uh, Justin Townsend of HorrorNews.com praised the writing, uh, stating that Rituals, uh, watching Rituals, having seen so many of these subsequent films, drives home the fact that it is possible to make a taut, tense horror thriller without the need for huge swaths of special effects and gallons of fake blood. There is more character, story, and enjoyment to be had in the film and in, than in much of the current franchises put together. Some like it taught. <laughs> nice hour and a half. Can't complain about that. Taught is definitely an accurate description. TV Guide, when it came out, had less fond things to say about it. It gave it one out of five stars, calling it a cheap north of the border ripoff of deliverance. Leonard Malton gave it one and a half out of four stars, calling it, quote, unpleasant end quote fucking Leonard Malton he doesn't make it onto the pod as much because he doesn't review I don't think as much horror in general but like he's he thinks even less of it than old good old Ebert does it's a one word review unpleasant not even worth a full sentence <laughs> ouch this is pretty scathing <laughs> It did gain additional minor recognition after Stephen King. If you uh, cheap plug, go back for the last two seasons prior to this, and you can indulge yourself in all the works of Stephen King. 
that were adapted to the big and small screen in some cases with our Stephen King Terror Timelines Part 1 and 2. 20-plus episodes of Stephen King goodness for you. And it's all right there on the feed now, but also soon will be available in the archive only at patreon.com slash OG scare. But Stephen King put it over and even recommended it in his 1981 nonfiction book about horror, Dance Macabre. And he uh, included it in the appendix, which listed roughly 100 fantasy and horror films tied together by their time and excellence and marked it as one of his own personal favorites, although he did not know the name of the director. So, you know, a Stephen King endorsement has made many a career that we've talked about on this show, Clive Barker being one of them early on, and uh, the film Rituals being another that uh, his endorsement at least helped out. So that's going to do it for this film. If you want to own it, then Annie can tell you exactly how. So it was first released on VHS by Embassy Home Entertainment in 1985. And that was still under the title Rituals. Um, and then it was released for the first time on DVD by Mill Creek Entertainment in February of 2006 as part of its Drive-In Movie Classics 50 Movie Pack. Mill Creek then re-released the film in 2007 and then it was also released by Code Red on DVD in 2011. In 2012, it was re-released by Film Chest under the Creeper title. And then subsequently re-released by VFN in 2015. Um, and that doesn't specify if it was the Creeper or Rituals, but it's out there. Um, it was released on Blu-ray for the first time in January of 2019 uh, by Scorpion Releasing. And that was a limited edition and was exclusively available for sale on the Ronin Flicks website. And then finally, Scorpion Releasing in association with Kino Warber reissued the Blu-ray with an alternate cover art just recently in January of 2021, which is what Muji was referencing earlier. And then we watched it. Was it Tubi? It was. streaming. It's always Tubi. Tubi. Our good friend Tubi. Tubi and Kino Lorber. An unbeatable combination. <laughs> streaming on one. Get the special features on the other. All right. Well, only leaves one more thing, and that's final motherfucking thoughts. I continue to enjoy the foray into deliverance ripoffs. Um, I, I think both of the ones that we've covered are of a great quality. Whiskey Mountain had its own kind of flavor as more of an exploitation film. This is just a fucking straight up good movie. The acting's good. The story's good. There's suspense. There's drama. There's intrigue. There's emotion. Uh, um, I'd rank it up there amongst the best Canadian horror films ever made. I mean, it's right up there with fucking uh, My Bloody Valentine and Black Christmas and, and more. I mean, I think it's really an unsung hero of that Canadian tax shelter horror run. And, I, you know, I think Hal Holbrook's performance in it's kind of fucking legendary. And I, I think 
you know, he later became Hockey Mask Jason, but I, I think Friday the 13th Part 2 Jason might have been kind of based off of this guy. So I think it's an influential film as well. Uh, nothing but praise for Rituals. Check it out. Dan Bob says, check it out. Um, I liked this movie. Um, I think of all the Deliverance copycats that we've watched uh this one it doesn't feel like a copycat like it clearly is um but it also it doesn't feel like it when you're watching it um like if you hadn't seen deliverance but knew about it i guess you could like maybe this is my perspective but it's my fucking thoughts so it is um, like how I had not seen Deliverance, but was very familiar with what was in it and what it was about, but still hadn't seen it and then watched this one, I wouldn't be going like, oh, so that's clearly a Deliverance ripoff because like it's different enough and it feels well made enough and it's well acted enough that it's, it's like having the British version of The Office and the American version of The Office. Um, they are the same but they are different. Um, and some people very much prefer one or the other and some could go either way. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, but yeah, it's enjoyable. It uh, stands on its own and it's worth the slightly longer than an hour and a half it takes to watch it. And you'll get some good laughs and some good times. Wow, that was a way better analogy than what I was going to come up with but i agree with those sentiments um yeah i think obviously i like these kinds of movies um i think this is kind of just a kind of forgotten gem if you want to call it that um i just caught it randomly one day and i don't know that i ever would have heard of it but it was a pretty freaking good movie um it's enjoyable to sit down and watch it's got some good cinematography it's got good music it's got you know in most of these kinds of films you know, maybe you have a couple of good actors and everybody else is just kind of showing up. But, you know, like we talked about, there seemed to be a good camaraderie among the actors. It was believable, you know, to watch them interact together. Um, Hal Holbrook was a freaking tour de force here of <laughs> just good old fashioned acting. And, you know, that's that by itself would be worth it. But uh, really, I mean... I think maybe this film was forgotten. Maybe they didn't know how to market it. You know, we could speculate all day. Rituals may be kind of a cryptic title. And to be re-released as The Creeper, that's just a shit title. And we all know it. So maybe that's why, you know, it's kind of fallen into obscurity. But it's definitely worth a watch, at least for the line. My last serious boyfriend is now a borderline psychotic teaching karmic fascism somewhere up in the mountains. Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally forgot that they had a freaking gay character in 1976, and it was just, like, not even a fucking thing. Canadians, man. Yeah, I like the movie. Um, I thought that it was uh, good. It's just a straight-up slasher, you know, like, where you're just, you know, falling through the forest and, you know, trying to figure out who the, you know, is a good who done it, trying to figure out who the killer is. But, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna be my point is it actually had like played with like a lot of like way deeper themes than like your your average um you know slasher movie or, or horror movie of the time did like i said the first thing was yes there was a guy in their crew who was 
um, gay and all, you know, it seemed all of his friends knew it. It wasn't a big deal. They didn't make it like his whole personality or plot point. You know, he just casually mentioned his boyfriend and, you know, nobody really bats an eye, which like you said, and, you know, for a movie for 1977, you know, the, to treat it that way was definitely different. Um, they deal a little bit with PTSD the actual same character, you know, talks about alcoholism and how they had to quit drinking at a certain point. And then, of course, you know, one of like kind of the the bigger themes of the movie here is like you kind of got the the double whammy of you've got these, you know, like well off, like rich doctors dropped in the middle of a place that, you know, was like an in, in a uh, indigenous person's land, and they don't treat it serious at all. They're obviously immediately overmatched just by the elements like even before the killing starts you know it's like they lose their boots they're like well fuck how are we even going to do this like we you know we didn't bring backup boots so they're obviously people that are like way too confident in themselves or dropped off into a place that they don't have respect for and then the same thing you know the the guy who's you know obviously had like the the terrible time with like the botched surgery overhears them at a certain point you know, all of the doctors, except for the one how Holbrook plays, are making fun of some of their patients. So you've got these rich, privileged guys in an indigenous land. They don't respect that. They don't even respect the people that, you know, they treat who they're making the money on. And then they all pay the price. So, yeah, I think it's actually, you know, it's a pretty deep um, slasher movie for 1977. So definitely recommend it. Hell yeah. Now, these are the type of movies that I love doing this show for, where it's like, um, I like being able to revisit movies I know I love, but to find a movie of this quality that I'd barely heard of and to get introduced to it like this, um, you know, really makes this show worthwhile in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. And one other thing, too, I guess, I mean, I kind of forgot to make the point of there, too, is that, you know, how Holbrook's character is the only one that survives and he's the only one that, you know, initially like respected the land that they went to and the journey they were going to take. And also was the only one that wasn't making fun of his patients and, you know, even brought up like, you know, like the ethical like nature of like what some of the other doctors were, you know, kind of wanting to do. So it also, you know, plays that tale. He actually respected respected his patients and respected their little journey and you know and the killer let him live at the end so yeah definitely awesome to find a movie that like a you literally either hadn't heard of or kind of saw in passing that actually you know was pretty deep yeah definitely thought so so this this kind of marks the end of the deliverance ripoff phase now we're already into 1977 the movie was shot in 76 but uh, we'll take a break from Deliverance-ish things next week. We will be back to a couple of them after that, because now we're past the era of Deliverance ripoffs, and we'll start getting almost 10 years past it into the era of films that were just influenced by Deliverance, because it was such a culture, cultural touchstone for so long at that point. But we'll give you a break from that type of adventure to a pure slasher, raunchy, fucking mean-spirited movie uh, from 1980 next week, uh, people have called this a, a predecessor. Um, and it's like, they've, you know, in some ways a ripoff of 
Toby Hooper and also a predecessor of Rob Zombie and somewhere in the middle. Talking about a a really fucked up and fun movie that we're going to watch. Mother's Day is what we're watching next week on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. By Shredderford, as well as K.T. Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respect.